Well, all year we are working our way chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the gospel according to John. And we're calling this whole series, Finding Life in Jesus' Name. And today we have a passage that really talks about this exact theme. And so if you missed any of the passages, uh, messages that we've done so far, you can always go back and watch or listen online uh, because I'm a couple weeks, uh, I had a couple weeks off there. I uh, did that as well. I listened and caught back up with what I missed. And I just want to say I really appreciate Casey Johnson from the EFCA and Ted Selker for, for preaching for us while I was gone. But I'm very glad to be back. Uh, so this morning, we're jumping it back into chapter 3. And uh, just a little recap. John 1 provided a great intro to the, the ministry, the, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And also his practice of calling men and women everywhere to follow him. Uh, chapter 2 introduced the first of seven miraculous signs in changing water into wine and in uh, the teaching that Jesus was to replace the temple. And that's a big deal, and we talked about that several weeks ago. Now, starting here in chapter 3, John starts a longer section of conversations with individual people and Jesus. What would it be like if you had one-on-one -on -one time with Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? What would you ask him? You know, why are there mosquitoes? Something like that. Would you ask a more theological question, perhaps? Uh, would you want to know something about him? Well, it's really fascinating in this section of John's gospel to see Jesus interact with these people one-on-one. -on -one. And, and it's fascinating to me for several reasons. First, though Jesus did have crowds of thousands of people following him during certain points of his ministry. He was incredibly popular and influential. It's clear he doesn't just seek the fame and glory of the crowds. He ministers to individual people too, which speaks to his humility. But second, this collection of interactions or conversations with Jesus, they're all different. And that's interesting to me. No two are alike. So Jesus doesn't have this like canned speech or presentation that he gives everyone. He meets everyone where they're at and then helps them move forward from there. And this speaks to his heart for people. And each interaction teaches us something a little different, something new about the person and work of Jesus. Today in this conversation between Jesus and a, a powerful religious leader named Nicodemus, John reveals the, the core of what is fundamentally different about Christianity compared to any other religion or philosophy in the world. Now we say it all the time, but the way of Jesus is different. It's a different way. It's unique. But it's this very uniqueness of Jesus that makes the Christian gospel such good news and shapes how we receive it and how we apply it to our lives today. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, I'd like to invite you to take it and open it to John chapter 3 and uh, verse 1. John chapter 3 verse 1. We'll put the scripture on the screens for you as well. Uh, but let's, just, let's jump right in with verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, 
We know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God, unless they are born of water and, of, and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Okay, let's pause here for a moment. So, as we said, we have a powerful religious leader named Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. And you might wonder, why at night? Well, we're not exactly sure. Uh, John leaves it somewhat ambiguous. Now, perhaps Nicodemus wanted to come in secret, not being sure if he wanted to actually associate with Jesus or not. Or perhaps it was because Nicodemus wanted to have a longer conversation uh, with Jesus and not interrupt his public teaching to be respectful of Jesus and his time. Now, maybe this was just a, a detail that John remembers because he was there, and he just remembers that that's when it happened. But uh, Nicodemus, at any rate, starts this conversation in a very respectful way. He calls Jesus rabbi, which means teacher. It was a title. And not only that, but a teacher who has come from God. And he asserts that no one could be doing what Jesus was doing if God were not with him. Now, this isn't a bad start, but it reveals that Nicodemus doesn't really know or believe in the fullness of who Jesus was. Now, there's a little play on words here that John uses that's maybe hard for us to see in the English, but he says, Rabbi, we know it could be translated, we see that you are a teacher who has come from God. Now, in John, physical sight and the opposite, blindness, is almost always used as a metaphor for spiritual sight or the ability to see and believe the truth, particularly about Jesus. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the dark Claiming to be able to see. But can he see? This explains Jesus' response. Jesus responds using this formula that we've, we've already seen, which highlights the importance of what he's about to say. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you. Now literally he says, amen, amen, I tell you. Meaning, sit up. Pay attention. What is about to come is really important. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, this seems to throw Nicodemus a bit because he responds, how can someone be born again? Surely they can't enter again into their mother's womb, right? Nicodemus doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. He's taking the need to be born again, literally, but in the next exchange, Jesus makes it clear that he's talking about a spiritual birth. 
Flesh gives birth to flesh, he says, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. A new birth into a new life, as we'll see, into a new family brought about by an act of God, the Holy Spirit, the personal presence and power of God. So Jesus states that without this new spiritual life, no one can see, no one can enter into the kingdom of God. What does that mean? What is the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God is the place where the reign and rule of God is experienced. It's it's the place where God is king, where he is the Lord. Now this, of course, should be Everywhere, it should include the whole universe. If God is the creator and this all is part of his creation, this is all his. But the teaching of the Bible is that the human creatures of our world led a rebellion against the reign and the rule of God. We rejected God's word and God's way and as a result, followed our own word and our own way. As a result, our world is a kingdom of darkness, a lack of spiritual insight. But God initiated a rescue plan. He would invade this kingdom of darkness to liberate the captives living in this land of darkness. And so with the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God was breaking into the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of this world. Now, if you've ever read the Bible, this has been a promise of God for for centuries before this time in the Old Testament scriptures. One of many well-known passages, passages that Nicodemus would have been well-schooled in, would would include Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. Let's read through this. This is the Lord promising through the prophets, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is what God said he would do. So Nicodemus, as a member of of the Pharisees and a member of the Sanhedrin or the Jewish ruling council, highly educated in the scriptures, Nicodemus shouldn't be surprised by anything that Jesus is talking about here. The need for new birth, the need for a new heart, the need for new spiritual life. But this is the exact problem that Jesus is dealing with. Nicodemus doesn't expect this. He doesn't realize this is required. And he represents the best people among all the religious leaders of the Jews. Jesus always cuts to the heart. Let's continue with verse nine. (laughs) What does Nicodemus think about this? Verse nine. How can this be? (laughs) Have you ever felt that way uh, related to the things of God? What? What is the Lord saying here? What is Jesus, what are you talking about? (laughs) How can this be, Nicodemus asked. Verse 10, you are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, highlight this, we speak of what we know. There's that same word again that Nicodemus used. 
Nicodemus says, we know, and Jesus says, we know. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, but, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who has come from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Okay, let's pause here. It got dense toward the end, didn't it? <laughs> Jesus is, he's, he's, we have to think carefully about what he's saying. So here Jesus moves from the promises of God and the prophets, like Ezekiel that we mentioned, to show that this new spiritual life and the, and the need for this new spiritual life can be seen elsewhere in the Old Testament scriptures. For example, in the writings of Moses in the Torah. Jesus mentions a story of Moses and the bronze snake from Numbers chapter 21 to show that that, that story was only foreshadowing what God would do to provide this new birth. The fact is, everything in the Old Testament of our Bibles points forward either to our need, desperate need, or to what Jesus would accomplish in the future. But in order for people to be able to see and therefore enter the kingdom of God, in order that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him, what must have to happen? Jesus says the Son of Man must be lifted up. Just as this snake needed to be lifted up and all who looked toward it would live. Now this is a reference to the hour, as it's called in John's gospel, when Jesus, who is the son of man, would be first raised in death on the cross and then raised to life on the third day in his resurrection from the dead. And so exalted, lifted up by his people. Now there's no way that Nicodemus or the other disciples who heard this conversation at this time, would have been able to fully understand this before the cross. But later, later on, they did see and they did believe and they did remember what Jesus had said and they understood what it meant. And what Jesus is saying is that to be born again, to fulfill the promises of God, to be made spiritually alive and go from death to eternal life in the kingdom of God, you need one thing, faith in the person and work of Jesus. And this is the heart of the Christian gospel. It's not what you do that saves you. It's about what Jesus has done in his life and death and resurrection from the dead. It's not about our moral performance as, as a good person. It's, it's about receiving the saving grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, most people, whatever they believe about Jesus, most people, maybe some of you today, but many people in our, in our culture believe Whatever they think about Jesus, they still believe that the purpose of life, basically, is to be a good person. Or at least do more good than bad. 
But anyone who's really tried to be truly good or truly loving for any amount of time at all will see that they fall far short of even their own standards for right and wrong, much less God's perfect, uh, perfection. So we, we modern people have an ancient problem. If God is real, then how will anyone be able to stand before him and give an account of our lives to him? Now this is what is so totally different about the way of Jesus. Because every other system, every other religion, every other way says you have to do more and try harder. You have to pray more, you have to give more, you have to sacrifice more, you have to be better and try harder. But Jesus says that anyone, anyone, can see and enter the kingdom of God, not be because of their own goodness or their own faithfulness to the Lord or to the law, but because of the goodness and the faithfulness of God. But why, what in the world would motivate God to treat us, imperfect, sinful, struggling people, in this way? Why would God offer the salvation that is free for all, although it was so costly for Jesus? What is the motivation behind these ancient promises of God, the, the ancient stories that foreshadow this salvation and the actual sending of Jesus and his suffering and death on the cross? What is the why behind this? Look at verse 16. For, because... God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does, does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen, seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. This is God's word. I feel like we just need to blast off into the rest of chapter three from here, right? Okay, now, most commentators, what's happening with this passage? Most commentators believe that verse 15 is kind of the end of the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Uh, and then verse 16 and, and through the end of this passage that we read is like John's commentary, his teaching on what we just uh, encountered. Now, it's hard to tell because there are no quotation marks in the Greek, so we, we can't see that the conversation ended in 15, but verse 16 seems to start John's commentary on this. That may be where the red letters end in your Bible, some of your Bibles. At any rate, John's answer to the why behind the gospel is only one incredible thing. Love. Now, this isn't a sentimental sort of love. According to the Bible, 
Love is the most important thing. The reason is rooted in who God is. God is personal and relational as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit forever. He is perfectly three and he is perfectly one. And so in this universe that this God made, love for God and love for our neighbor is the highest calling for human beings made in the image and likeness of God and is the greatest commandment for the people of God. People are people in the culture, in our world, are right to think that they ought to be good people because that would be the most loving thing. And this leads us to this, the most famous verse in, in all of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. John is clear. The world is not condemned by Jesus' coming. It was already condemned. We are already in a kingdom of darkness. But God loved us even though we have failed him, even though that we loved darkness instead of light, God still sent his son for us to seek and to save us when we were lost. The fundamental problem of the Bible, the problem solved by Jesus is a life of broken loves. A self-centered, distorted, or disordered love leads only to destruction and death. This is why we needed a rescue plan. This is why we need a savior. This is why we don't just need a little help, like a few tips on how to be better. That is not salvation. That is more along the path to destruction. We needed Jesus to die for our sins. We needed Jesus to rise again, breaking the power of death. We needed a whole new heart. We need a whole new life spiritually. We need to be born again. Well, what does this mean for us today? How do we apply this radical teaching of Jesus and the unique way of Christian salvation and the reason why the gospel is still good news? How, what does this mean for us today? Well, of course, the love of God mentioned here is so compelling. We could, we could focus on that for the rest of our lives. And also the themes of the kingdom of God and the Holy Spirit. There's so many rich themes in this passage. And we'll encounter many of these themes again and again as we continue through John's gospel. But for today, I'd, I'd like to leave you with just one thought related to why Christian salvation is such good news. If Nicodemus needed to be born again, there's hope for anyone. You see, back at this, in this time and place, Nicodemus was absolutely at the top of society in Judea. He was an elite he was at the moral and political and social and religious top. So if anyone could earn their way into the kingdom of God, Nicodemus would have been one of the most likely candidates of this time and place. But according to Jesus, None of the normal social markers of status or success 
matter to him one bit. It doesn't really matter if you're an elite or if you're a nobody. In fact, the next conversation that we'll see next week is between Jesus and someone that has no social status. It didn't matter to Jesus. Let's think through who Nicodemus was. It didn't matter to Jesus that Nicodemus was a man in a society that afforded more rights to men at this time. It didn't matter that he had the right family background, that he was ethnically Jewish. He could trace his lineage back through the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It didn't matter to Jesus that Nicodemus had a top theological education. He was a Pharisee. He was probably a rabbi to others. He would have been widely accepted in this time and place as one of the top religious leaders, most influential people in their society. It didn't also matter that he had a, pos a position of political power as a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. Now, interestingly, it didn't even matter that Nicodemus had a, seemed to have a healthy respect for Jesus. He, res he was respectful to Jesus, calling him rabbi, remember? He said, no one could do what you do, Jesus, if God weren't with him. He even recognized that Jesus had God's power to perform these signs or these miracles. But despite all of these normal markers of what we would consider to be status or success, and many of which would still carry weight in our society today, despite all of the social capital that would come with these various aspects of his identity, Jesus was crystal clear. Nicodemus still needed to be born again. None of that saved him. He still needed the true and everlasting life of God that comes by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. He still needed to spiritually see and know and be able to enter the kingdom of God. In a very real sense, this seemingly impressive man was still lost. Now, when we get the implications of this, I'm sure when the disciples really thought about this at the time, it should make us ask, as the disciples asked themselves at other times, wait a second, if Nicodemus needs to be born again, who then can be saved? In other words, if Nicodemus isn't in, who is? Who could be? Well, the answer is, if Nicodemus needed to be born again, my friends, there's hope for anyone if even the best among us could not earn their way into salvation, into the kingdom of God, then we all must receive it as a gift of God's loving grace. So everyone who believes, anyone who believes, may have eternal life in Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the, the good news that people have been telling the world about for 2,000 years. And it's as true today for us as it was 2,000 years ago. When you become a Christian, when you truly see and believe in the person and work of Jesus, you have been born again. And this new birth is initially of a spiritual nature, but later will be of a physical nature in the resurrection of the dead. 
If Nicodemus needed to be born again, ironically, there's hope for everybody. There's hope for me, and there's hope for you. Finally, as we close, John doesn't tell us here what Nicodemus concluded about this maybe confusing, but certainly challenging conversation with Jesus. But we have two clues later in John's gospel that Nicodemus eventually came to truly see in the sense that John uses here and to know Jesus as his Lord and his Savior. In John chapter 7, Nicodemus publicly defends Jesus in a session of the Jewish ruling council. But then, more tellingly, in John 19, when the Son of Man had indeed been lifted up and Jesus had suffered and died on the cross for the sins of the world, there were two men who went to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, to ask for the body in order to give it a proper burial. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Now, John doesn't explicitly say that Nicodemus became a Christian, but it's hard to explain his actions any other way. So I believe that Nicodemus came to see that he too, despite his background, despite his status, despite his goodness and faithfulness to God, he too needed to be born again and go from death to life in Jesus' name. And if there's hope for him, there's hope for you. Let's pray. Our Father, what can we say to this type of good news but thank you? We give you all the honor and the glory and the praise for working out this rescue plan through your son Jesus and through the new life that comes by your spirit. Because, Lord, who could make this up? It is unbelievable. And the fact that this is all rooted in your deep, steadfast, and abiding love for us is, it's just too much. It's too much to comprehend. But Lord, if this is true, and if you are the one who cares for us, even though, even when we love deeds of darkness, even when we would have picked to not love you, you continued to pursue us in your love. And Lord, I pray today for all who are hearing these words, I pray that, Lord, you would open their hearts to believe in the person and work of Jesus. And I pray, Lord, for those of us who have, we have placed our faith and hope in you. Lord, would you encourage us? Would you remind us that we came into this relationship with you carrying nothing, carrying no good works, but just bringing ourselves to you in an act of faith? Lord, what an amazing story of your grace and your goodness. We love you, Lord, and we pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name.